Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. Oh my gosh, Siobhan! Hello, hello. It's so exciting to be here. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Um, We're going to be doing a conversational uh, sermon today, and um, I have some questions here. So, Siobhan, let's just get right into it. Can we we just get right into it? Let's do it. What is is the context of these verses? And can you um, speak right into my cat? Yes. Yes. Is this better? Yes. So Moses went to talk to God, and the Israelites didn't fully understand. Then Moses' brother Aaron organized the Israelites and instructed them to take their gold and make them into a calf. He then built an altar for the calf and had a celebration for it, calling it God and saying that this is the God that will save them. The real God noticed and planned on destroying them all. So Exodus 32.10 says, Let my fury burn and devour them. But... God, well, Moses pled his case, reminding God that he, she liberated her people and reminding her of the promises that Moses made to her ancestors and that Moses' descendants would prosper. God then decided not to kill the Israelites. Well, <laughs> so lots of juicy things there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like a couple of quick observations that I want to make is that if you ever like feeling that Minnesotan Midwesterner thing that's like oh I can never be mad because being mad means that I feel something and I can't feel things <laughs> I want to point out that God was so mad that she was going to devour us so that's worth noting um, and, and also I think that there's like a really beautiful a lot of times you've talked about telling the story and telling the mm-hmm. history and I think mm-hmm. this text really stands out from Moses saying like I'm going to recall the story of how God mm-hmm. is related to our ancestors and that's part of the reason why we start worship the way that we do, because um, we are, we're trying to recall how God has interacted with ancestors, because that can inform us today. For sure. Um, so this text has a lot to do with idolatry, which mm-hmm. is kind of a scary word. Um, can you help us, Siobhan, like, how might we approach idol- the concept of an idol in modern times mm-hmm. and kind of avoiding that? An idol in the most basic definition is something or someone that you make equivalent to God. No person is able to encapsulate God's love and goodness, which is why it's considered a sin to make something or someone into an idol. They just won't measure up, no matter how much we pretend that they can. So when Aaron and the Israelites made the calf, they were telling God that they turned their backs on God's goodness. Worshiping an idol is a way not to put in the work of changing yourself to change the world, to not have to do good by your neighbor, because an idol doesn't care about that stuff. Hmm. The Israelites made an idol as a coping mechanism to deal with that Mm. uncertainty. It's as if they were saying, we don't know what will happen with God, but we know what will happen with this idol because we made it. Making something into an idol is a way to provide certainty in unfamiliar situations. But a way that the Israelites could have avoided this situation is by trusting that God will lead them where they need to go. They could have reflected on why they felt uncomfortable not knowing every aspect of God's plan and prayed for more understanding. 
Idols are often made as a reflection of our own hardships. Lean into that uncertainty and trust mm. that God is working in your favor. Whoa. <laughs> okay, dropping gems. Here we go. So um, I really love this theme of um, leaning into uncertainty. And it does seem like this Exodus story is trying to sh- reveal a fundamental human nature of, of grasping for a sense of control and stability. Mm-hmm. And sometimes being so drawn to control and stability that we end up harming ourselves even more yeah. than we would have if we were able to t- tolerate the discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, could you tell me, uh, could you talk more about God's role in these verses and how we can dive deep to see the sacredness in the story even amongst, admittedly, some problematic parts, right? Yeah, what do you think, Siobhan? Well, this bit is particularly juicy. Yes. <laughs> so something that I've gotten better at since coming to New City is trying to see the sacredness in things that I don't necessarily agree with and to wrestle with the stories that I feel farthest from. I find the part about God wanting to wipe his people off the face of the earth super problematic, <laughs> and I'm still wrestling with this part of the story. In this story, Moses acted as God's moral compass by reminding her of her promises. God is seen as an impatient child, while Moses is portrayed as the reasonable adult. Hmm, hmm, God hmm. almost went back on her promises that she gave the ancient biblical leaders' descendants to prosper. God isn't entirely shown as a good guy in these verses, and this chapter of the Bible is honestly pretty violent. But the sacredness I see in this scripture is Moses standing up to the creator of the universe and advocating on behalf of his needs and the needs of his people. Moses didn't shy away from telling God exactly what he needed, and this can be a lesson for all of us to advocate for what we need, even Mm. in scary circumstances. Even when we're dealing with powerful figures, we need to let our needs be known to God and to each other. Another thing to notice is how God relented from her anger, and we are once again to see her patience with the Israelites, even though they majorly messed up. Whoa. Yeah, that, I've never thought about that reading before, but Moses was advocating for his, uh, his needs and also the needs of his people. Mm-hmm. And that kind of models for us, like, it, or it prompts us to ask ourselves, what are the needs that we are feeling in our own life? And do we feel comfortable asking God to meet those needs? And then what are the needs that our people, however you might define that, are facing? And are we comfortable and trusting of God to be able to, to respond to that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a that's such a fascinating that's such a fascinating read. I also like um, have spent some time in. Have any of you ever spent time in like high expressive conflict culture, mm-hmm. like cultures mm-hmm. of high expressive conflict, where it's like big gestures, big voices, big movements. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So like. I don't know, something I've, I learned and spent, I, I grew up like, oh, Minnesotan, oh, just don't worry about it. Okay, it's okay, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Here's a sandwich. And uh, like, I feel like what I learned in um, higher expressive conflict cultures is sometimes people are like, I could kill you and your family. And that's really them saying like, what you did bothered me. Please reconsider. You know, like sometimes it's just like, sometimes there's like, they're like fully letting the emotion rise and express itself, which I think honestly is probably better for our bodies. Mm. And uh, and sometimes we, we, you know, we say things that we don't entirely, literally uh, mean. Maybe God was hangry. I don't know. 
Um, <laughs> but it does kind of beg the question. I mean, those are kind of like ways to explain away God saying something, but it is kind of still messed up, right? That God is like, I'm about to like wipe you. Um, so how do we engage with violent parts of the Bible, Siobhan? So I was told in Sunday school growing up that the Bible was written by people inspired by God. And if we believe that, we can believe that the people brought their biases and baggages with them when they wrote. And we approach the Bible, it's important for us to approach the Bible with humility and nuance instead of assuming that we know what they meant in such a modern time. The way that I see it is that a lot of the violent passages written in the Bible were written by people who wanted justice from their oppressors. So they wrote of God using language that reflects ideology, ideology of vengeance rather than language that is meant for the flourishing of all of God's people. When we encounter problematic bits of scripture that can cause harm, it's important to remember the sum and not just the parts. Hmm. The Bible is a book of stories meant to uplift and affirm the marginalized, and the life of Jesus did exactly that. Hmm. Hmm. When a story in the Bible stands out as particularly violent, go back and see if you can discern any sacredness in the test. After all, the story was included in the Bible for a reason. Hmm. And it's important to remember that while the Bible is a sacred text, we don't have to treat all parts of it the same. Mm-hmm. Some parts are easy to see God's threads of liberation, and other parts feel like a God that we're fighting against God mm-hmm. rather than having God be a God of justice and mm-hmm. not just a revenge fantasy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, revenge fantasy. <laughs> but I think that if we don't wrestle with certain texts, it doesn't show, well, it shows that we care as Christians that what the Bible has to say. It shows that we're trying to do the hard work of being engaged with something, even when it isn't the easiest thing to do. But again, not every part of the Bible should be treated the same. We'll spend a lifetime wrestling with some of these verses, while others will be easier to go along with. Hmm. Sometimes we have to make peace with not getting clear-cut answers right away. Ultimately, I'm a big believer of letting people ultimately decide with themselves how verses fit into their lives as we all won't wrestle with the same parts. Very true. Yeah, yeah, each of us bring our own lens to reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. I, really, I really think what you're naming is important because um, folks who say that they take the Bible seriously and are literalists uh, uh, presume that they're reading each part of the Bible with equal weight, but they definitely aren't, right? Like there's, every person kind of like makes different priorities out of text and uh, like every person makes centerpieces out of uh, their scriptural reading. And as Christians, uh, the approach is to center Jesus and to say like the, the stories that Jesus has, the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus is uh, we're centralizing that because that's how we become followers of Jesus, which is like to be a Christian. Um, and that means that the rest of the text all kind of hangs underneath the teachings of Jesus. And like you were saying, Jesus cared a lot about uh, liberation of the oppressed. And so like, if Jesus cared about liberation of the oppressed, but then there are other texts in the Bible that seem to contribute to the oppression of oppressed people, then that's not a Christian reading of that text, right? Like it's like, you could call it like, Biblianity, <laughs> or you know, like if you're following something else, if you're if you're if you're just doing a literal reading, that's a different thing. But if the whole idea is to be Christian, then that means like we're trying to follow Jesus, and that means like if God is messed up in Exodus 32, and in not showing up in a way that 
is jives with Matthew 5, then we're going to prioritize Matthew 5. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Does that... Does that yeah. No, I, I completely agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. And lastly, I just have a question. Um, you've been doing some reading on process theology. I have. And I... Which is... a. A very, uh, uh, a lot of words just went through my head that I'm not going to say uh, on the podcast. A lot, a very spicy uh, school theology. Yes, it is. It um, is. So, do you want to talk about like what does process theology have to do with this story? So, process theology is a theology developed by Alfred Northup that basically says that the qualities of God, such as her goodness, stay the same, but that God can change. I'm still discovering this concept, so those who went to seminary definitely correct me. Uh, I'm still learning along with the rest of you. But process theology believes that God changes alongside us. And because God can change, we can influence God. God isn't static or stagnant. Moses changed God's mind. The Old Testament is constantly showing us how God works with humans to create solutions. Hmm. I think about the book of Jonah where God decided not to destroy the city of Nineveh after they repented. God changes her mind, but her goodness stays the same. Hmm. Moses advocated for the Israelites to God, telling her to spare them. Moses asked God to remember the Israelites' ancestors and the promises she made to them. God changed her mind and spared them from her wrath. God is still a gracious and merciful God that loves us. She brought the Israelites out of Egypt for a reason. Moses was able to change God's mind. Christianity doesn't have to be this top-down religion where God caresses us into making decisions. It can be so much more relational. God wants to have a relationship with us, like Moses did with God. In order to create change with God, there has to be a relationship with God. When we hurt, God hurts with us. Mm, mm. A key part of process theology is not just noting that God's changes, but that we are in a constant state of becoming. With process theology, we're constantly becoming something different. And as a teacher, I have a lot of students that try my nerves. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, it helps to think of them from the lens of process theology. Rather than thinking that if the student doesn't turn in their homework, they will always be a student that doesn't turn in their homework, I try to see the student as someone who is in a state of being, as a state of becoming, rather than static. To see them as someone with limitless potential, as that's what God sees in me, what God sees in us. Hmm. We are in the process of becoming something different, and hopefully that different is moving closer to the will that God has for our lives. Mm. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, um... Just from a show, who has heard of process theology before? Is this a kind of, okay, wow, okay, I see you. Yeah, um, I think this, you're really naming, like, this text in particular is a core text to the approach of process theology. And, um, and it kind of is inspired, or it carries the same tenor, not inspired by, but it carries the same tenor as, like, Octavia Butler's, like, mm-hmm. changes all, like, that actually like there's more stability in just assuming that everything will change Mm -hmm. than in trying to like grasp or hold on. Yeah, Octavia Octavia Butler's parable of the sower even went as far to say God is change. Yeah, God is change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think process theology is very like aligned in in that um, observation. And I think that 
Um, the consolation that that could give us is that God wants to actively adapt and be in relationship with, with people, um, that God cares and that God's not just like a rock that we keep hitting up against, but rather that God is malleable. Um, I also know lots of folks, uh, and including like leftist folks, liberation folks, who um, sometimes struggle with process theology because it's a little a little changey-wangey, and they kind of want things to be a little bit more like, like, if my, if I'm in the hospital with someone I love who is dying, like, that's not really the time when I want to be like, wow, everything, God is so amorphous, <laughs> like, there's a certain, like, stability that sometimes people find, um, really important in their understanding of God, so, um, uh, I think that the beauty of seminary and the beauty of putting all these theologies in conversation is for you to, uh, be able to expand your understanding and your um, imagination of who God could be for the sake of you encountering God in a felt way in your real life. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about uh, things? God is a God of change and encourages us to change. The Bible is beautiful and violent and was written by flawed people, no matter how inspired they are. But that doesn't mean it's not sacred. Hmm. wrestle with the text you find the hardest to see the threads of liberation wow what a word can we show lots of love for Siobhan <laughs>